0: Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who enjoys bee song, bee song, the buzzing of bumblebees, big, old, beautiful bumblebees with all these unusual markings. And, um, and and you know, we we haven't sprayed in our yard and been fortunate to live in the same spot for uh, several decades. And we have all these wonderful uh, plants. We have gooseberries and blueberries and raspberries and huckleberries and um pear trees and peach trees and um, hazelnuts. We have all this wonderful uh, food for pollinators and humans. You know, we can't you all eat the same stuff. But um, so we've been graced with this beautiful bee song. And not only do we have the plants and we're not doing any pesticides in our yard, but we also have a lot of habitat for uh, pollinators in our yard. So we don't tidy up at the end of the year. We just um, let things stay there. And so because of that, we're graced with this wonderful bee song. And um, right now, um, more, than half, more than half of North America's wild bees are in decline. And one in four are at risk of extinction. You know, monarch butterflies, they're down 99%. So today's show is all about pollinators and how jerky humans are. And uh, we have um, three people who will be joining us. Uh, Lori Schneider, she, she's the Executive Director of Pollinary, Pollinator Friendly Alliance, Dr. Verna, Ver, Vera uh, Kishner with the University of Minnesota, and Lori Cox with Root Return Heritage Farm. So welcome. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Lori.
1: Thank you. I love your little intro. It, it, it's such a beautiful time of year. Everything and, oh, is just it the is light. so
0: beautiful the time of the year. And I must admit, I feel a little bit bad calling my fellow species members jerks, but <laughs> 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 I do, I do. I mean, it's like, but it's so. It's actually, and I, I know probably for you as well. When you really understand what's going on in our ecosystem, it's just, it's, it's, it's difficult.
1: Yes, and that is really our biggest challenge. Is trying to get the word out and help people understand really what's happening to our ecosystem and, you know, that we're all connected and we rely heavily on keystone species like pollinators. So thanks for your
0: program today. Well, thank you so much. Okay, so Lori, tell us a little bit about Pollinator-Friendly Alliance.
1: So Pollinator-Friendly Alliance was born really around a kitchen table by a couple of concerned citizens like many folks on the radio listening today, I'm sure, in Stillwater, Minnesota. And it's grown into a regional environment, nonprofit, as we partner. And really, we just follow the lead of other concerned citizens like ourselves, which has grown our organization dynamically to meet the needs of our times. So we partner with educators, naturalists, scientists, farmers, and other conservation groups to get the biggest and most impactful work done that we can during these critical times.
0: And one thing you sent me this week was um, information about a new major study. So you want to briefly, and we'll talk more about that study later on with um, uh, with Dr. Vera. But tell us briefly about that study.
1: Yes. So there have been I. Maybe this is not correct, but it seems a new study is coming out every month about the, um, the toxicity of pesticides. And this latest study, which was shared with me by Dr. Krishik, is um, about the toxicity of applied insects and their effects on aquatic invertebrates and pollinators and how it has increased over time and um in in combination with other pyrethroids and you neonicotinoids know, and on genetically modified seed has really had bigger impacts than what we thought previously and I'm sure Vera can get into the details. Right, you a little bit and we're going to get into a
0: there. lot of those details. So like bioaccumulation, the United States uses still uses 1 billion pounds of pesticides. Um, our bodies ha- still have DDT. 85% of us still carry DDT in our bodies, even though that has not been used for decades. Um, and the um, American Bird Conservation reports that just one seed treated with a neonicotinoid can kill a songbird. Yes, that's
1: right, and... uh, these seeds, the pesticide-coated seeds, really should be regulated as pesticides so that, you know, things like storing them improperly or leaving piles of them out in the fields because they had too much seed, so they, you know, they just leave it there and the birds eat it, the deer eat it. And of course, we just had a study done by the DNR in Minnesota, which revealed that um, most of the deer um, spleens were full of neonicotinoids. So, you know, this is not a good situation.
0: And we're going to be going into more of that more later on. But, okay, so Pollinator-Friendly Alliance. How could humans be friendly to pollinators?
1: <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of things that we can do. Um, the biggest impacts on pollinators and Um, you know, this could really be applied to other animals as well, is pesticide use and the loss of biodiversity. So, you know, that term is sort of new biodiversity to the general public, I think. But um, if we could make big systemic changes to the way that our food is made, from the industrialized agricultural Model to regenerative biodiverse farming, that would be a huge um, impact, have a huge impact on our world overall. And in our backyards and urban corridors, because of industrial agriculture, which takes up so much land in urban sprawl, if we could create corridors that are biodiverse. Even in our backyards or where we work, places of worship, community parks, you know, we don't need all these lawns and um, pieces of turf that have no um, food for pollinators or wildlife and causes to use herbicides. Really, we can put biodiversity in all sorts of little nooks and crannies, and that will help a lot.
0: Right. I sometimes like to call the uh, monoculture um, sterile yards, they're sort of like zombie yards, because they don't, I mean, they don't, and, and, yet, and yet they're so popular. But there seems to be a big shift happening right now. I mean, I'm—I I, I, do you feel that, too, that people are really starting to get the message now and going towards bee-friendly lawns?
1: Well, it's funny, you know. It's sort of generational. I think people who are a little older have actually witnessed; they've seen the decline. They see no more fireflies at night, and you know the butterflies are disappearing, and um, they can't jump in any lake anymore because it might be contaminated. And then also, the younger generation is sort sort of paying attention to the science and thinking about their future and what sort of future they're going to have if we don't change the way that we do things. So, um, yes, I think that there is an awareness. And in particular, in Minnesota, we had made really uh, big strides several years ago, and then sort of the administration changed and perspectives changed during the last um presidential <laughs> administration. So we're sort of starting a little bit over now and trying to um, share those ideas again about sustainability and regeneration. And the Lawns to Legumes program is a really good example of a great Minnesota idea um, where Small match grants and larger grants for groups are being given out to change and transform turf into habitat. Unfortunately, in this legislative session going on right now, um, they're still in committee talking, and there's a few legislators that just do not like any sort of environmental or um or provision that has pollinator attached
0: to it I know and that is I mean I, I kind of wish there could be a sense of unity uh, uh, around something like pollinators but yeah so it tells uh, I know um, so the lawns to legumes there's no funding for it it's all run out and so that's right now before the Minnesota Senate and where it's been blocked in the Senate but um, the house and governor Waltz is eager to sign that that type of or support those types of programs
1: well that's to be seen but oh, okay. um yeah, we're not sure what the governor will do. And the um, main opponent is one senator, Bill Ingebrigtsen, who has been trying to block all of this um, legislation for the environment. So, um, so far, it's all still in there. It's all in play, except for the ban on glyphosate, which is a very awful pesticide, which kills pollinators and also is a uh, nerve disruptor to humans so it's unusual that this pesticide is even used anymore but there is a um, national ban which most likely will go into effect so fingers crossed on Fingers that
0: crossed. One. I mean, I see a bald eagle. We saved that. Um, we banned DDT, so I really hope we can um, increase our awareness. And so, Lori, uh, tell people where they can read about your, go to your website. There's just a ton of information out there.
1: Yes. Yeah, so we are overhauling our website in response to what people really need to know. Um, and we get so many inquiries inquiries people are really curious and want to help so it's pollinatorfriendly.org and there is one page with just webinars and videos And another page with scientific information, and another page on how to
0: feed habitat. So I, you know, I I thank you so much, uh, Laurie Schneider, with Pollinator Friendly Alliance. And we're going to come back. We're going to talk about some of the latest research on uh, pesticides. Um, And you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Thank you, Laurie. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who absolutely loves to listen to the buzzing of bees. Um, and uh, But yet right now, um, in more than half of North America's wild bees are in decline, and one in four face extinction. And joining us now is a leading researcher on pollinators, um, Dr. Vera Krishneff with the University of Minnesota. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Yeah, thanks for reaching out to me. Yeah, thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about your background.
2: Oh, I, I like bugs. I like <laughs> diversity of all kinds, plants, animals, and uh, insects. are really fascinating because, you know, you can do a lot of ecology with them. You can keep them in your lab. You can rear colonies. So um, they allow you to ask a lot of questions on correlations and then mechanisms of why things are happening. So they're a really good unit to do research on for ecological questions.
0: Awesome, and so your personal background—you have a PhD in entomology.
2: Yeah, so yeah, so yes, yeah, so I got a master's of vertebrate ecology. I worked on fish, and then I realized, wow, that's hard to go collect fish in a stream. You've got to put waders on. You got to get the canoe off the car. Mm-hmm. How many times I end up? I couldn't get the canoe back on the car. Well, mm-hmm. so, bugs was a really good choice. I worked at the Smithsonian for about four years in the collection, so. I, I truly love bugs.
0: Yeah, I do too. I love bugs. And what do you, I mean, sometimes people are like, oh, bugs, yuck. What What do you think when people, especially even kids, are almost taught that? And um, it's kind of sad.
2: Yeah, it is very sad. It is very sad. I just, uh, just like we're trying to accept diversity in people, I think people should accept, you know, insects. They're, they're not dirty, they clean their antennae, they clean their bodies. <laughs> even insects that eat poop. They clean themselves. I mean, so they, you know, they do a lot of grooming behaviors. They have social behaviors. They're, you know, I hate to tell you this, but they have a lot of behaviors that we have that we don't realize. Um, Lots of organisms have very similar behaviors to us. People don't want to hear that. They kind of like the
0: interpretation
2: that we're in charge and... I think we all evolve. So, but and that is going off target here. No, actually
0: I think it I think it as I don't know if it is going off target because I think we all need a place to belong and we all belong to this earth just as we are and we all have a place and pollinators and bees have a place. And and
2: Every insect has a place because without, you know, without herbivores that let's eat your tomato leaves, what would a bird eat? So the whole thing is a very complex food chain, food web of interacting needs. And so uh, I think historically it's just if you grew up in a family where people thought bugs are ugly, you think they're ugly. But, you know, I I ask people to try to change the paradigm in their brain and accept that without insects we're in a heap of trouble.
0: Mm -hmm. And what's going on with insects on the planet right now?
2: Well, everybody all around the world, their scientists are going out there. The first study came from Germany about six years ago. And it was just a nature preserve, and they actually just went out and grabbed insects in nets and weighed them. A very simple method, you know, you do three sweep nets, how much weight of bugs? And they found over the last hundred years, the bug amount has gone down tremendously. And that started lots of people in different countries asking questions. Everyone's finding the same thing, that diversity and abundance insect biomass, how much insects are out there decreasing substantially, and nobody really can figure it out yet. There's lots of correlations, there's lots of theories. So, kind of bugs are going the same way as birds, and you know, without bugs, birds, a lot of, you know, insectivorous birds can't exist. So, And without insects, plants can't make seeds. So the whole food chain is being affected by the disappearance of insects.
0: And are humans outside that food chain so we're going to be fine regardless of what happens to anybody else? I think humans would
2: like to think that, but No. I mean, you know, you see these apocalyptic movies. I watch them as a scientist, and the last one I saw, everybody was just eating wheat because nothing else. They couldn't produce anything else. I was like the last crop on Earth. And so, you know, if you get rid of the pollinators, you lose all your fruit trees, squash, a lot of your vegetables that need pollinators. So, you know, we may survive on a very limited diet for a while, but the more you mess up the food chain, the more interconnecting Balances, that checks and balances, I think things keep things from getting out of control or disrupted things and things then just start going out of control. So that's where we've gotten with these monocultures of crops. You just plant one crop, you know, you don't keep soil fertility up with organic practices, and before you know it, you're just moving, doing more and more spraying, which brings up two recent articles we wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these two articles, one came out in 2019, and Bunch of American scientists. The first author's name is Bartholomew, and then the other authors are um, Susan Kegley's on it, who's a toxicologist. Pierre Minot has a toxicologist from Canada. Rosemary Radmont and Clender Cl- uh, Klein, all toxicologists, and were the last people who work for the Friends of the Earth. So they went out there, and the, so this is 2009, published in Plus One. And the bottom line is, they went out and they were trying to see if it's true what people are saying, scientists in the u s j that you know we've made a lot of progress in reducing pesticide risk. And their conclusion was, no, we haven't. That we've gotten rid of pesticides that people perceived as really bad for the environment, like DDT, the chlorinated hydrocarbons, and um, things like chlorpyrifos, which is in the news. Most of the organophosphates disappeared. But believe it or not, organophosphates were not toxic to bees. DDT was not toxic to bees. And so those classes of chemicals were replaced by neonicotinoids and by um, pyrethroids, which are very toxic to bees. So then just this month, another paper came out. Um, a lot more detail, breaking it up. There's a supple, It's only three pages long in Science Magazine, which is you know one of our best magazines. Uh, for the scientific community, but if you go to the supplements, there's 35 pages of supplements, which is astronomical. And so what they took, it was the next level. They broke it up into different taxonomic groups of animals, uh, insects, birds, mammals, and asked similar questions about is it true that the toxicity of chemicals that we use for agriculture is decreasing? And they came to the same answer as the 2019 Bartholomew's paper that No, it is not true that we're using more toxic compounds, and even on GMO crops where we're supposed to use less pesticides, we're using more pesticides.
0: Right, and so that was a 25-year study. That's a landmark study that just came out. And and again, the promise of GMOs was, hey, we're going to do this GMOs, and then we won't use any chemicals, so it ultimately would be good for the environment. But that's not the factual that happened, Right. That's what this 25-year study is pointing to.
2: They they looked at the data over 25 years. The data was over 25 years. And the first paper, the Bartholomew's paper, also looked at the data over a huge span. So they've been getting the data that was published for 25 years, and they compiled it. And so um, what they have come to these conclusions is because the chemicals that are used, the neonics and pyrethroids, are more toxic at a much lower dose. For instance, the neonics are toxic at a 0.004 uh, micrograms per bee. 0.004 micrograms per bee, you can't see it. It is that little.
0: Yeah, so we're going to need to take a break, break. We'll be right back. But, yeah, the American Bird Conservation Group um, reports that a single seed treated with neonics can kill a songbird. And we're yielding one billion pounds of this stuff today. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and with us right now is Dr. Vera Krishnas from the University of Minnesota. Um, Dr. Verna, share with us some of the research you've done about uh, pollinators and um, uh, uh, pesticides.
2: Yeah, so uh, our lab has been really lucky. We've gotten grants from the Minnesota legislature to look at issues with pollinators in terms of what pesticides can you use, what pesticides are more toxic, you know, we need pesticides to make food. There's no question about it. The EPA has been working very hard on developing pesticides that are compatible with bees and other good bugs that control pests. So everyone is kind of on the same team working in the same direction. And so we were just out there trying to get some numbers because without numbers you can't evaluate things. So we are trying to look at what levels of neonicotinoids affect bees at the sublethal. Um, what affects behavior so that they're still alive, but they're not functioning properly? And we've done that with bumblebees and honeybees, and now we've gone off and done it with butter- butterflies. And we just submitted a very good review paper uh, with our data looking at um, these measures of toxicity to try to sort out um, if pesticides in the environment can be hurting Um, bees and butterflies, you know, the data is a lot of people do these correlative studies where they see a decline in insectivorous birds or butterflies or native bees and they find pesticide use is increasing due to, you know, data from like the two previous studies we talked about and they come to the conclusion the mechanism, the effect is from pesticides. Well, then you need scientists to do the experimental studies to actually show that's true. So that's what we've been working on.
0: And do you have some definitive um, indicators that uh, humans' use of uh, chemicals um, harms um, other life forms?
2: You know, it would be odd if they didn't, because (laughs) insecticides kill insects. Bees, butterflies are just another insect. And so there's a lot of attempt to keep the insecticides within the ag field, to not have it drift out on water or air. And, you know, so when you come up with some data that maybe there is some drift, People are very proactive trying to stop it. Last year there was dicamba drift uh, from a herbicide, and the Department of Ag here in Minnesota came up with limitations of when you could use dicamba. It volatilizes when the air gets warm in June, so you have to use it on fields before June. So that's one way of trying to keep a pesticide in its spot. So it would be odd if you did research on pesticides and you didn't find it killed bees, We're just trying to sort out at what level and do insects bump into that level in the
0: field. And so I want to kind of talk more generally now about pesticides because, okay, so a billion pounds are used every year. More than 17,000 different pesticide products are on the market, and they really haven't been tested for safety, those 17,000. Would you agree with that statement?
2: No, not at all. That's not true at all. The EPA has a huge uh, standard test that they do with everything that's registered, the active ingredient, and then the compounds itself. Uh, they go through rigorous testing. So um, I would disagree with that. It is comes really down to your definition of the tests they are done and how that meaning then um, can be applied to what is going on in the field. A lot of times these tests are very simple. They only look at one compound. So the Food Quality Protection Act of 1996 said that we had to start looking at Pesticide risk assessment for multiple compounds. Then we had to look at the dose for young children as well as adults. Traditionally, the toxicity was looked at only for 160 pound males. So now the Food Quality Protection Act has some parts of it that are all about all the pesticides being re registered and evaluated in different ways. So, you know, all yeah. these agencies are working really hard to try to control the use of pesticides to make sure they're at safe levels. But, you know, when things go on in the environment and then we get um, events that people then can correlate to pesticide use, then we start to realize, okay, maybe we have to have more limits on their use. So, you know, the problem is once you went from small-scale farms, more organic, sustainable farms, to these bigger corporate farms which rely on more pesticides, rely on GMOs, pesticide use goes up. And unless you have good management to keep it in the field... It moves off the field, so we have very large population. We lean a lot of food. We have to produce agriculture, so, you know, there's a balance here. So I would love to say, oh, yeah, somebody out there is doing something wrong, and that's the problem, mm-hmm. but the regulatory system has worked very hard to try to figure this out and make it work, but, you know, science works. It's an iterative process. You do X, Y, and Z, you go out and look how it happens, and then you get exceptions, and you go back and you try to fix it. So uh, yeah. it's just that as long as you have all these pesticides registered and they're used for food production, we need the food, you're going to have issues. So,
0: yeah, and I, I mean, I agree, but okay, so, this, so there's 17,000 pesticides, and actually what I meant to say is that you know, there's really not good understanding of how these multiple chemicals interact in our body and interact in our ecosystem.
2: There are a lot of, there's a whole field of toxicology that looks at this, and people like myself and other people look at it for certain target insects, so people are trying to sort this out. Um, you know, the European system, they banned neonicotinoids um, a couple years ago now, because mm-hmm. they have a different regulatory system skilled EFSA, the European Food Safety Authority, and they give research to their scientists. Scientists in different countries work on the same problems. They produce papers. The papers are approved, put on a website, the European Union representatives get together, and the process is very smooth. We have a different process here for evaluating, going from EPA-generated data to risk assessment data to complaints of what's going on and then trying to change what's available. So our process is a little different and a little more complex. So the European Union has been faster and you know, reducing some of those pesticides that are available. So, you know, on corn or soybeans here in Minnesota, theres I don't want people to think there's 17,000 pesticides. There's probably 20 that are used in everything from urban backyards to controlling termites. So it really comes down to about 20 active ingredients, and then a couple of those are mixed together, but there really um, aren't that many different pesticides out there that are used anymore but there probably if you look at all the people for you know agriculture versus box stores that supply things to consumers there's a prob- probably a, a lot of companies that Use these active ingredients and make different products, which probably is how you get up to 17. Well,
0: fat. yeah, and so, and then, but then it's also that uh, issue of bioaccumulation. So we're all exposed to this, and uh, there's been a lot of research about how um, these pesticides are I- impacting the health of children.
2: Yeah, so bioaccumulation, we figured that one out with DDT. It bioaccumulated in fat, and so when, let's say, a Daphnia, a little water flea, was eaten by a bluegill and then a um, bass ate it, and then a uh, eagle ate it. The chemicals went up the food chain, and so that was bioaccumulation and biomagnification. And so by the time it got to the birds, the DDT and its metabolite, DDE, prevented the eggshell from forming. And so the eggs would crack, and there would be no recruitment of new juveniles. So, yes, it's true. It's not true of every chemical out there. So the EPA has gotten wise. They now look at uh, how compounds can be um, de- degradated by light, by microbes in the soil, by water, three major methods. So they try to register pesticides that degrade, that don't bioaccumulate. I'd say people learn their lessons from DDT. However, the neonicotinoids, and this is why they were banned in Europe, they do hang around for a long time. If they're in the soil and there's no UVB light, they're not biodegraded. If you spray it on the surface of the soybean, it is biodegraded. And so they tend to hang around, and once they're more than an inch into the water column, they can be there in the soil or in the water for a long time. So the neonicotinoids are the one group that has that issue right now.
0: Um, and so um, and another thing I want to get into is aging, because as we get older, we're exposed to more of these, so there may be connections between the uh, amount of the billion pounds of pesticides that are used every year and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Um, those can be linked they can cause human problems as we age.
2: Yeah, well there's a lot of a da- lot of people out there who are trying to figure that out. Um, it is true that uh, there was a compound and it was an organically registered compound called Rodinone and it was in the bark of a tree in, in South America and um, they used it in surveys for fish, you threw it on the water, killed all the fish, you could figure out what fish you used to have in that stream. Well, that was linked to Parkinson's, and that has been banned, and it's not around anymore. But that was an organic product, believe it or not. But there are um, a lot of research trying to sort out what chemicals are linked. So you hear a lot in the news about chloropyrifos now, this organophosphate, Mm -hmm. that was supposed to be taken off the market two or three years ago. And there's some good data there about it affecting uh, lungs and also affecting children. So people are trying very hard to get this data. It's just very difficult with humans to, you know, get these studies to get good correlations, but people are trying to sort that out. I know we all think this is true, but the scientists are trying to sort that out.
0: And it is a complex, long process. We're down to about our last minute. Is there anything else you'd like to say?
2: Well, I think, you know, for me, I want to say to those consumers who have choices of using pesticides in their backyard, there's one thing that we all need food, and by creating monocultures, we rely on pesticides. So that may have not been a good idea, but that's what we're stuck with. But in your own backyards, you should be prudent. I mean, just because they use a lot of herbicides on corn, it doesn't mean you have to use it in your backyard. I mean, you don't have to use broad-spectrum pesticide use. Rethink your practices and try to do better stewardship in your own backyard to save pollinators, to save insects, to save birds. So put out hummingbird feeders all the time. Hummingbirds supposedly used to rely on sapsuckers making holes in trees. When was the last time you saw a sapsucker out there? Used to see them all the time eating ants now that they're now that they're not out there. So um, all this is linked and do what you can as a consumer to to help the ecosystem by reducing pesticide uses. Only prudently use it and help uh feed some of these animals that need more food.
0: And providing the habitat uh, is so important, uh, bee habitat. And so I thank you so much, Dr. Vera Krushchev with the uh, University of Minnesota. Um, and I uh, appreciate your time today. We'll be back with our last segment with uh, Lori Cox from Roots Return Heritage Farm. A land that I Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not uh, cheap, and a person who loves to listen to bee song. Um, And uh, with us right now is Lori Cox. Uh, She's with Root Return Heritage Farm. Hi, Lori. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. So uh, do you like to listen to bees too?
3: You know, um, it's not hard for us to listen to bees out here. We've got quite a few different areas I can walk around our farm and Especially in the springtime, it's one of the best sounds.
0: Yeah. So tell us about a Roots Return or Heritage Farm. Sure. We live on 16
3: acres here. We don't farm anymore, but four possibly at a time. We're diversified and small. So we have uh, fruit, vegetable, and herb. Um, I've definitely gone towards the fruits in the uh, more recent past, in the last six years, because they've matured. So um, obviously many of our fruits do need the pollinators and obviously do better. With the pollinators, but other things um, that are more deciduous and you know come from seed, things like squash and pumpkins and things that people really enjoy, Uh, we absolutely love uh, our abundance of pollinators out here.
0: And um, so, uh, a lot of people now say um, you can't farm unless you use chemicals. I mean, it's almost like we just—it's almost like we believe that we have to have these pesticides in order to produce food. Do you think that's a an accurate conclusion?
3: I think the um, problem actually comes from the disconnect of what kind of farming you're actually talking about. Um are small diversified practices that are mainly manual labor. I think uh, people kind of forget about us sometimes, even <laughs> though there's about 4,000 producers in the state of Minnesota for the census. Um, and my answer to your question is actually no, um, we here have been uh, integrated pest management since day one uh, we are available for certification we're not certified organic and um, that's our choice but we certainly choose um, to make many more sustainable practices um, and choices one uh, for the health of our soil uh, for obviously our environment and two we just think it's the right thing to do especially for customers um, and to keep people coming back and interested obviously in what we do um, and how we grow
0: And we started the story, the show off today with the Pollinator Friendly Alliance, and you've been active with them as well. Correct. And so what do you do with them?
3: So what we've really done over time, I think, is collaborate. Uh, I I am a Minnesota native, but I was gone in the Pacific Northwest in the Seattle area for almost 12 years. I've been back here for six, and I did already know um, of Lori and and their groups. And I think through those small farms networking groups, frankly, they're quite tight, um, and folks that are in support of what we do uh, we support them as well there's a lot of cross pollination sorry mm-hmm. um, <laughs> cross work that goes on in between groups and networks and we find that we can obviously support each other um, through that work so even this year and even several years ago uh, definitely doing a testimony and support of bills that are in front of legislators as well
0: when I think that one in four of North America's wild bees are at risk of extinction, I don't feel much patience for our food system.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of these folks that are doing what you're talking about are my neighbors. And um, that becomes a very difficult thing to do when you're one of only a few in a certain area um, that grow the way you grow. Um, we have to be careful ourselves um, and use buffering and practices and things of that nature and notification um, to make sure folks know where we are. And it, it's almost gone in the opposite direction where we have to put ourselves out there versus anyone else taking the time and care um, to be a making their applications the way they are supposed to. But B, uh, why aren't you looking into other ways of farming? There are biologicals out there on the bear market even today um, that they're using and actually using through practice that the more education any individual producer can have for themselves versus listening to the constant dependency wheel um, on chemicals, the better off they 're going to be uh, just for their own land or to even have succession
0: and there 's been the some there 's been some interesting movements, so for instance, Dr. Ratan Law won the World Foods Prize, and he talks about soil quality, soil quality, soil quality mm-hmm. and I know Dr. David Montgomery has documented that small farmers make far more money per acre. Doing Correct. regenerative agriculture than the conventional farmers, and the one thing that's going to really shift the entire system is as people just decide how do I make the most money per acre. <laughs> Correct,
3: and and that's that's a great point. And uh, if you look at any graph over time, um, this is through EPA, this is through uh, USDA and NAS and the ERS service, ARS service. You can take a look pretty quickly and say that chemical usage and costs versus commodity farm pricing has way outpaced uh, pricing for producers. So then you say to yourself, well, it's this dependency wheel once again, one, on federal subsidy, um, and two, based upon the, the practice that they feel they can't get out of. And that's a very sad Place to be, and I've heard my neighbors say the exact same thing. They don't even know how to take that first step.
2: Uh, and,
0: that, and 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 I, I love this uh, um, phrase: assume goodwill. You know, I'm talking sure. about your neighbors, you know, assume goodwill because we're not we're all caught in systems. And so, how do we, yes. you know, sort of uh, by assuming goodwill of the other, we activate our power to to make um, real change in this world. And and I know there's a statistic out there, and unfortunately, I don't remember. But last year, uh, farmers made an incredible amount of their percentage of their take home income was from federal subsidies. So, I mean, the entire Um, food system's off.
3: Actually, so the last two years, it was from uh, not having an agreement with China. Mm -hmm. So it was the administration um, that pumped um, a subsidy that would not have ever been there. And it actually made up, I believe it was over 40 percent, absolutely, of of farm income.
0: Farm Mm -hmm. income. And so, um, I know you have like a water certified farm, and and so you farm in a way that, that that honors water as life.
3: Sure. So in 2016, late 2016, we were certified. So it's Minnesota AG Water Quality Certification program. I also am a third year member um, on that advisory board for the state. And that means that through the practices that we have, we obviously show um, through a measuring tool, that we care about uh, our environment, we care about water quality, and our watershed. We are extremely close to the Minnesota Valley uh, Refuge here, the National Refuge. We're two parcels away, Um, so everything is downhill from us. We do continual cover cropping, so we use grain manure. I have no livestock here. Um, That stays on our highly erodible soils all the time, Um, so if I don't even – I I do no-till drilling. If I don't do it once a year, I do it twice, and then I terminate by mowing. So, as an example, this year is the first time uh, ground has been tilled in two years uh, for the renters on my property.
0: Hmm. And so, um, what's your idea of food freedom?
3: Well... Quite frankly, um, there's two sides to that argument, and it's not an argument. It's more discussion, obviously, of um, food freedom from a consumer standpoint or food freedom from a producer standpoint. And everyone is an eater, so everyone fits the first category, but not everyone fits that second category as a producer. And I think the freedom to produce the way you want has to include uh, the environment around you. In which case, you would have to ask yourself, not even as a consumer, but as a producer, am I part of the problem or am I part of the solution? And frankly, I'd much rather think about it and I'd much rather be part of that solution.
0: Yeah, and that's that is Yeah, from that food producer perspective, and, and you mentioned this earlier, and I, I've heard this from several different farmers. It's like it's kind of crazy if you do what's kind to bees and you're environmentally responsible. It costs you extra. <laughs> you're not rewarded. Right. It costs you extra. Like I have to seek certification, but all the you know um, pesticide uh, the, the companies that use a billion pounds of pesticides don't. I mean, you know, how do we rebalance Correct. this?
3: Well, frankly, I, I believe my own personal, it's at the federal level. And so the subsidy comes out obviously from all of our tax dollars. So you pay for those subsidies that pay for those people. All of us do. I do too. You can't, you can't separate that. The issue is what does the subsidy go for and what could possibly this administration or administrations following take a look at that at the USDA and say we need to start tying these subsidies to certain practices.
0: Yep, yep. I would. I would almost guarantee you
3: that you would suddenly have education.
0: Um, I would definitely agree. It's federal po- policy. Uh, it's kind of crazy that the subsidies all go to corn and soy, which is unhealthy, and it's too expensive to eat fruits and vegetables, which is healthy. We would save healthcare dollars. <laughs> You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you so much, Lori Cox, Roots Return Heritage Farm. <laughs>